Hello, I'm Chris Neeland, host of a new podcast, Cult Brand Secrets, brought to you by The Gathering and Evergreen Podcasts. The Gathering is a Forbes top-rated business summit and a masterclass for brand and business leaders looking to reap the benefits of cult-like adoration. Each year, The Gathering brings together disruptors from around the globe to learn from and to celebrate the leaders behind iconic brands like Marvel, Skittles, Beats by Dre, Yeti, and the Dallas Cowboys. For the first time ever, this podcast will give you access to some of the exclusive business leader learnings from the gathering's past events. IBM is a remarkable company, having masterfully pivoted over its centuries-old life to remain highly relevant in their B2B space. In fact, they're sort of the poster child of reinvention, having started in the hardware space and now thriving in the professional services space. I'm a huge fan of their marketing, particularly of Watson. I believe its success is attributed to masterfully applying multiple cult brand principles. But IBM wasn't at the 2019 gathering as an honoree. Rather, we invited Nancy to come and present because of their proprietary research about customer experience and how they're learning how to help brands apply artificial intelligence to improve strategy, creativity, and technology, and how those three things co-mingle in hyper-efficient ways to really boost the customer experience. So have a listen, and just as importantly, please download IBM's brand belonging research that Nancy references throughout her speech. Doing so will help you see how well and how quickly your company can begin to leverage their findings. Thank you to all of you for being here. This is my first time to Banff, and I arrived late last night, so I didn't have a full appreciation of the magnificent nature that we're surrounded by. And this morning when I opened my window, my breath was taken away. It was just, it's such a extraordinarily beautiful place. And I feel very, very fortunate to be here for this event and this really wonderful gathering as it, as it's so rightly called. Some of my IBM colleagues and I were talking about how wonderful it is to be at this conference because it's so different than a lot of the other conference that we find ourselves at, which are very technology-focused, but we're very, very happy to, to be here with you. As Caroline said, uh, IBM's engaged in work for a number of our clients around brand experiences. And so I'm going to talk about that. I'm going to talk about it in the context of how AI is changing that. And I've got kind of a little bit of a mashup of taking some AI and then taking some thoughts from a big study that we did around brand belonging, which I think is applicable to a lot of the conversations that's been going on here, and talk about those two things uh, together. But first, I'm going to start 
start with a question that a lot of people, some of you might be asking is like, why is IBM here? I find this, I, I usually talk about this, especially at any marketing conference that I'm at. Last year I was at Cannes and I, I started with like, why is IBM here? And I purposely chose our Rebus logo designed by the iconic designer, Paul Rand, because I think it speaks to the company's history in design. As Caroline said, our company is 108 years old. We've continued to evolve as a company over those 108 years. You might be surprised, I certainly didn't know this, but nearly 70% of IBM's revenue these days is derived from services. So this is not a hardware company. It's not even a software company. This is pri pri primarily a services business. And design and the belief that design, good design is good business, as stated by Thomas Watson Jr., has been a theme that has been part of the IBM DNA for many years. And the company had brought in Charles and Ray Eames in the mid-60s and Elliot Noyes and Paul Rand to do various product design work for the company over the years. But then when the company hit some very challenging points, that we kind of lost our way with that for a while. But I'm happy to report within the last decade, we've been working very hard at reclaiming our roots in the world of design. And recognizing that as the company transforms, the way in which our people work needs to transform as well. And so it was with that thought that IBM went to the D School at Stanford and commissioned our own version of design thinking and has adopted design thinking inside our four, nearly 400,000 associate company as the way in which we solve problems for our clients. And so today, nearly 200,000 IBMers have been trained on design thinking, and it is something that is the underpinning of the work that we do today. So kind of switching gears here for a second and just talking about, I, I, you know, I think everyone in this room probably is very well aware of the fact that as we have gone from being very much of a product-oriented uh, economy to a services and experience-based economy, that you know, most CEOs, most CMOs believe that innovation around their customer experience is what's going to bring them to have a competitive edge. And it was really with that notion, as Caroline said, we have a group inside IBM called IBM IX, and it was with this notion that customer experience was going to be such an important part of our client's business that motivated IBM to create this group. So we have 42 studios across with 16,000 associates across the globe. And the company that I founded was the first agency that IBM acquired in this space. And really, we work at the intersection of strategy, creative, and technology. We help clients think about their businesses differently. You know, we, we talk about don't be, let's Uberize your business. You don't want to be Ubered. And so reinventing your enterprise and thinking about what that might mean from a digital strategy standpoint. We work at transforming that strategy into whatever innovative experiences might be for that client. And then certainly the technology underpinning and platform that really drives that is, is part of the process as well. So when we think about AI, at IBM, we think about AI as being augmented intelligence as opposed to 
art, uh, artificial intelligence. It's about man and machine and those two things working together. But last week, our chairman, Jenny Rometty, said this again at our worldwide conference that every job every single job will be impacted by by AI. And that's why it's really important that we as marketers really understand this because every single thing that is happening in any of our clients' businesses is going to be impacted by AI. And we believe, we have a stand that we believe the world will be better for it. Our purpose is to be essential, to help change the world in a very authentic and real and purpose-driven way. We are a B2B company. We suck at B2C, let me just say, as a company, as a brand. I think we learned that with the IBM PC. We are not a consumer-facing company. We are a B2B company. And where this matters, I think, in this particular area is that because we're a B2B company and we're built for enterprise, the data of our clients is always their data. We are never compromising or utilizing or leveraging our clients' data for to monetize anything for ourselves. Our clients' data is their data, and that's the way that it is inside IBM. And I think that that's become even a more important thing to consider when you're partnering with someone in this space, when data is driving so much of what's happening. So I like to take a step back and think about like, how did we get here with AI? And like, what does this all mean? And why is this all happening right now? Well, you know, there's this massive amount of data. And if you think that there's a massive amount, you're right. But you may be surprised to learn that 80% of today's data is not searchable. 80% of the world's data currently is not searchable. And just think about how overwhelmed we are today with 20% being available to us. So it's this massive amount of data. And with cloud, we have near infinite storage, which we've never had before. And that combined with the way processors now work and are much cheaper than they used to be, has really created this environment for artificial intelligence or augmented intelligence, as we like to say. And as marketers, this is huge a huge opportunity because it allows us to personalize things in a way that we've always wanted to be able to personalize things for our clients, but we haven't had the uh, opportunity to. So um, one of our recent studies showed that AI will, you know, our, our executives believe that AI will fundamentally change how they approach customer experience in their business. But equally important, it's that that they view that um, customers will view their brand differently because of AI. And so, you know, we're seeing this in different spots, and I just am going to kind of hit a couple of examples. Some of them you, you might be familiar with. Here we have Stop and Shop, who is starting to um, pilot driverless grocery vehicles in the greater Boston area to to bring a collection of stop and shop produce and meal kits and convenience items to your doorstep. Certainly starting to pilot, we're gonna see a lot more of this happening. Some of you might be familiar with Sephora and what they've been doing with their facial recognition and 
artist program, which will allow you to try on cosmetics and then send the cosmetic to a to a bot who will tell you whether you've got an up or a down arrow in terms of how it enhances your features. And here's another example with KFC in China, who its um, AI is helping to infer what a customer might want to order. The program collects data like gender and facial expressions and other visual features to provide menu recommendations to customers. We certainly are using it. Um, we've created a whole suite of tools, Watson Assistant for Marketers. Um, you know, MarTech is certainly one aspect of our business, um, our collective marketing industry business that's overwhelming. You know, whether it's, you know, optimizing paid media budgets and channels or delivering better, more measurable results and experiences for clients. Those, this is the kind of platforms, ours and others, that are delivering, that are utilizing AI. But in some ways around the experience revolution, you know, we're kind of at the beginning, but it's it's changing very fast. I mean, when you think about the five dimensions on the left side here of interface content, interaction, engagement, and experience, and you think about experiences in the past, they were very fixed. They were very programmatic, um, very informational oriented. Today, they are much more responsive and personal. They're ongoing and they're engaged. But where we see this going is that these experiences as consumers that we will have will be very fluid and it will be in the context of our lives. And when there aren't screens anymore, which I know is really hard for us to get our heads around, but that's where all of this is heading. They'll have an emotional component. We were talking about humanity and the emotional, how, how powerful emotions are in our last session with North Face. You know, this is all part of what's happening and what will continue to be cultivated um, as we become, have the ability to be more personalized with what we're delivering to our customers. So technology enables, but, you know, we as marketers have to deliver on the needs and expectations of folks. And we have a saying inside IBM IX that the last best experience anyone has anywhere becomes the minimal experience for that experience they want everywhere. And I was reminded of this last week. I was in a, a business dinner with one of the world's largest retailers, and we were talking about um, their internal operational process. And he was a fairly young person, um, and he was talking about that it's not acceptable in their company anymore for the internal operational experience to be, you know, those gnarly, crappy, not very intuitive interfaces that we've all had to deal with in the corporate world. But today, the associates in their company are demanding the same kind of an experience that they have, whether it's using lists or it's using their car or whether, you know, any sort of a digital experience, they have the expectation that they want to have that in an enterprise application as well. And to the company's credit, they recognize that that system will be more fully utilized and it will be much more impactful and helpful to them as a company when they are able to deliver that sort of a user experience um, in that particular domain. 
So I'm going to talk uh, a little bit about this, this huge study that we did called Brand Belonging. Um, it was actually, we had a hypothesis, um, and when I say we, the company that I founded that, we, that I brought into IBM three years ago had a hypothesis around this notion of belonging and what it really means in today's world. I mean, when you look at technology and we were looking at how isolation was making people feel, and as we like to say, an isolation isolation nation and what this is doing to all of us, the kind of the yin with that yang is that there is this overwhelming human need that's real and authentic that we all have, and it's this notion of belonging. We started thinking about what does that mean in the context of a brand when everything is so focused at this small screen? What does it, what does it mean when you know, we have humans that want to actually belong to something, and, and, and how does that impact brands? And so we commissioned a study with 172 brands with 4,000 consumers. It was both a qualitative and quantitative study, and it was done on a global basis. And, you know, what we found was that, in fact, um, people want more from a brand than a transactional experience. They want experience that make them feel things like they want to feel heard, they want to feel helped, they want to feel understood, they want to feel empowered, they, they want to feel included. And when we dug into the information that we we collected, we realized that, um, you know, this, this whole notion of belonging and isolation has become a macro trend for society. I mean, the UK government last year, Theresa May declared loneliness a public health crisis. And so what does that mean in the context of the world that we're living in? And what we learn is that brands that exhibit a strong sense of belonging, as we defined in our framework, which I'll get to in a second, actually grew much faster, three times faster than those that lagged in cultivating belonging. They also grew up to 12% a year and increased market share by over 10% in a three-year period, which, you know, seemed to underscore to us that belonging is not only a, a universal human need, but it a business and a brand needs to think about it as well. And so we created uh, six dimensions of belonging. Um, some of them fell into a camp that were more individual needs that I have as a, as a one humanness kind of person. And the other part of it was collective in meeting with a group. And in marketers, for so long, we've been talking about personalization as being the holy grail. And I think that, you know, certainly as I was saying, AI and all the data and the ability to have infinite storage and fast processing is allowing us to deliver some hugely personalized experiences, which is really exciting. But I think ignoring the fact that people also want to be part of something. I mean, it's part of this notion we were talking about purpose, and it does play a dimension of this needs to be considered as we marketers think about how this impacts brands. And so these are the six drivers. Um, by the way, this entire study is on the IBM website. You can download it. It's called Brand Belonging. And if anybody needs the URLs, just see me. I'm here all day and through the night. I'll be happy to get that for you. Um, I don't want to spend too much time going through the description of everyone, but um, you know the the three on the left: everyday enrichment, um, compelling relationships, trustworthy excitement, which we think um, 
just think I was thinking about how Netflix does that in the previous presentation. And then these collective dr drivers around empathic innovation, empowered communities, and activated purpose. Again, that purpose word. I'm just going to show you a couple of examples of how we have activated brand belonging for a few of our clients. So Medtronics is a client and um, has created a product for people that have diabetes. One in 11 adults has diabetes. I mean, this is a huge, huge issue. And by not measuring your, your glucose level, you know, can be a life or death situation. Um, and it is a very, very challenging situation. And so we created a, a cognitive mobile personal assistant that provides real-time actionable glucose insights for a patient and gives them a four-hour prediction of where their blood sugar is going to be so that they can act on it. Um, our friends at Medtronic put together this little video that I'm going to show you that explains how it works. I'm a morning person now, but I haven't always been. When you have diabetes, mornings aren't always predictable. But since I started using the Sugar IQ Diabetes Assistant with my Guardian Connect CGM, I not only manage my highs and lows, but I actually outsmart them. Hmm, looks like I'll need this to power me through my morning run. It's really helpful to have the Sugar IQ Assistant continually analyzing my glucose and insulin data, especially since I started training for a half marathon. Let's see what looks good here. With a big meeting this afternoon, I want to make sure I feel my best. Better go with a smaller meal. Sugar IQ helps me make confident data-backed decisions with personalized tips and insights. The Sugar IQ Assistant has one-of-a-kind technology that gives me a full picture of my diabetes. Awesome! With the Sugar IQ Assistant, days and nights are more predictable, at least when it comes to managing my diabetes. So to just give you a sense of the kind of things that we were doing, um, the next one a couple of our Asian studios did for Hutchinson, which is a telecommunications company, and they really wanted to appeal more to a millennial audience. And they realized, and this kind of falls into how are we going to reinvent our business, they created a contract-free mobile service, um, which seems very counterintuitive, but we were able to create a unique subscription-based mystery box that arrived every month that engages partners on a number of different levels and engages the consumer on a number of different levels. And, and, um, and how they use it is actually fueled by AI, which is a really exciting, a really exciting thing for us and has been very successful for them as well. No one thought that contract-free mobile services was going to be successful, but it has been. The last example I'm going to give you around, uh, and this is around compelling relationships, is, uh, you know, we, we, I wanted to pick something that was from Canada. And this is a Toronto-based tech startup um, that's making it easier with Watson to screen job applicants. It's called Nakri. You know, certainly employers face overwhelming challenges when trying to match employees with job options. And Nakri up and over in Toronto is doing just that and using Watson to do so. 
And last, I said last, but I was wrong. Uh, uh, the last thing is the launch of IBM Watson in Brazil, um, where we worked with the Sao Paulo Museum and uh, give visitors headphones and a smartphone equipped with a mobile app. And when they walk to various artwork, they have the app opportunity to ask personalized questions about that particular um, uh, piece of art and has really transformed the museum experience for uh, our, the museum goer and taken, you know, personalizing experiences to a new level. So in closing, I just want to hit on three takeaways. And that is that AI is going to impact every single person in this room. It already has, and it will continue to do so. I've been in this business for a number of years, and I remember when personal computers were not on desktops. When I started my business in 1981 with Apple as my first client, personal computers weren't a thing. And so AI is another revolution that we're going through. It's not something to be scared of. It's something that I think will, it with if things are in the right hands, it will enhance our world. And so thinking about how to utilize it and what your intention is for utilizing it is very important. But please know that it is on the doorstep if it's not already in the house. Um, this is happening very, very rapidly, much more rapid than many of us thought that it would. And I think it's important to try to pilot and take things, um, you know, one step at a time. It's, it's important to understand when you're talking about machine learning, the idea of machine learning, the word learning is there for a reason. You don't just deploy AI and overnight it changes an experience. The machine actually has to learn. I was saying to somebody the other day, about four years ago, I had the opportunity to ride in a Google self-driving car. And everybody said, well, you know, what was it like? And I said, well, it was a bit like driving, riding with a new driver. It accelerated too fast, and then it stopped too fast. And then I thought, oh, bless its heart. It's just learning to drive. It still needs to learn. And that's really true, that uh, implementing AI is a, any, a minimum a six-month to two-year kind of a endeavor. And so um, starting to pilot things and, and play with it now, I think, is really important. And then finally, that AI is essential for delivering on this promise of personalized customer experiences and belonging experiences. It's the fuel that will drive those experiences. And so starting to think about that is, is really important. There was one last thing that I was going to share with you that has nothing to do with IBM and nothing to do with marketing, but I thought that it was kind of cool because it was the first that I had seen this. So there is an album out there, a, a multi-artist music album composed completely with artificial intelligence. Its goal was to show that AI can be used to create new and compelling music by from a number of different data sources from all over the world. The artist is called Skuga, which is Danish, and it means shadow. And the album is really intended to become a landmark album in the history of technology and music creation. So as Owen is coming up for our Q&A, I think Ben is going to share with us a cut from this album. Even after, after feeling 
attention. Thank you. That is wonderful. Out of curiosity, that song that we just heard a clip from, that was entirely composed by? Totally and completely by machine. Artificial intelligence. I mean, completely aggregated. Went out and scoured Spotify lists and, you know, thinks about what kind of mood am I trying to evoke? What kind of an emotion am I trying to, you know, consider? What genre of music am I interested in cultivating? So I just thought that as we think about how fast this is coming and to see something that, you know, maybe none of us had seen before, I thought it would be a fun thing to share with people. Was it, I have to ask, was it intentional to give this uh, machine composer the creepiest name possible? <laughs> for just like for the You'll first album? You'll have to album? ask the Danish group about that. I have it, no idea. I mean, literally, I'm just glad we you just, did, you just didn't found say it this. named itself. Yeah. No, it but, didn't name itself. Okay. <laughs> um, Elon Musk, among other sort of leaders in, 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 technology and disruption and whatnot have urged caution when it comes to AI. And I don't think that it comes out of sort of uh, visions of a post-apocalyptic machine world or something like that. But what do you think uh, uh, are the necessary sort of guardrails that need to be put up as this technology speeds to reality? You know, I think that it starts with what your intention is. And um, I think that that's the first thing to ask yourself. Um, but I guess I think uh, one needs to consider how you're going to use it and who you're going to work with and are your values aligned. And that's a little bit of the underlying message when we we talk as a company about data and how data is to be used and how it's to be leveraged or monetized or not so in the, in the case of how our company looks at that. So I, I think that uh, being realistic and, and making sure that it's aligned, what you're using it for is in alignment with what your company's values are is, I think that's how it is with everything. Um, I think too much of anything can be bad no matter what it is. So you're not, not you're not nervous? No, I'm <laughs> you, not. You think that we we as it's a society is going to self-moderate, self-police and make sure that it's used responsibly for the benefit of like what you're bringing up here, customer experience. Yeah. I mean, I think that, um, like I was saying, I have seen so many different waves. And when I started my business, 
1981, the personal, that was at a time when computers were kept in clean rooms behind mm. closed doors. And no one thought who would need a commercial, who would need a computer on your desk? The idea of a personal computer was just unheard of. And so people thought that was creepy and sci-fi too. Um, I, as a you know young kid from the Midwest, really was inspired by it. I was inspired by the notion that a computer was going to democratize information and my access to information, um, which was something that I was always seeking as a young kid. I spent a lot of time in the library. And so I felt as though it was going to be like the library at the tips of my fingers. And so I, I found that to be interesting. And fast forward, here I am 35 years later as part of IBM. And, and you know, quite frankly, I, I never thought that, you know, given that I started my business with Apple, I never thought that I would end up in um, inside IBM. But I would have to say in the last three years, I'd learn, I've learned more than I had in the previous 10. And uh, I think it's very, very exciting. And I'm, I'm really delighted to be a part of a company that, that takes this work very, very seriously with um, a very high level of integrity. And it very much aligns to me. And I mean, there's always a yin with a yang. There's bad with good. I mean, we're seeing that now. We're seeing, um, you know, so many negative things that are happening with social media and and whatnot. And I saw an interesting article uh, on Glassdoor last night that suddenly IBM is the preferred employer of Generation Z primarily because they do not have any controversy associated with them, which, I mean, that's kind of interesting. So, but anyway, I, 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 I've seen these cycles. I remember when the internet was commercialized, I work with Netscape on their commercialization and the World Wide Web becoming accessible. And everybody thought that was going to be creepy and weird. And what was that going to mean? This is, we're on just another flip of that. And so, yes, there can be bad things, but there's a ton of bad things in our world. I think that if the, in the right hands with the right people, with the right intentions and the right values, it can have an, a tremendously positive impact mm. on society. And that's what I choose to focus on. You, you bring up a really interesting point with Gen Z, like wanting mm -hmm. to changing their employers of choice because they're not caught up in some sort of controversy. Obviously the last 12 to 18 months has seen plenty mm -hmm. of uh, controversy when it comes to how data is captured, um, how upfront we are about capturing yep. data, how then we use that data. Um, a lot of the, well, all of what you've talked about today is driven by data. Absolutely, talk about, absolutely. When, when you talk about consumer experiences, uh, presumably those are that's consumer data that's being leveraged to cater and contextualize. Um, it, it, it feels a little bit, and you probably have your finger on this pulse of this much more closely than I do, but it feels a little bit that in the last 18 months with some of these controversies, there has been almost a little bit of a pullback. For 20 years, we've given data without caring at all. Like, what does it matter if they know what website I'm on, what place I'm shopping, where I'm going and, you know, where my, where my office is, where my home is and all that kind of stuff. Um, how do we navigate that transaction, that transaction of I will give you data and you will give me value? Is that something that you spend a lot of time thinking about? Or? Yeah, I, and I think it's a highly personal, uh, I think it's a highly personal decision. I think about it every time I use social media. Am I willing to share a photo of being in Banff this morning to a whole host of people that aren't here with me that 
are excited that I'm here and they'll be like, oh, Kramer's in Banff and she's going to give that talk. And what does that mean to me? And what data the social media company is garnering from that. And you have to weigh that. What, what it's, you know, a convenience, it's a, um, and being thoughtful about it. And I, I've become much more judicious with what things I share. I think a lot of people have become more judicious about what they share and that, that whole part of it is, is, is kind of scary. See, it seems to be, it wouldn't be as much of a problem if it wasn't being passed along. Yeah. Like, I think if I'm searching for makeup and want Sephora to tell me what to put on my face, uh, I'm sharing things with Sephora and I'm assuming they're not sharing that anywhere else. And I think oftentimes where we've seen creepy ads that the follow you around is, yeah. is yeah. when it's shared outside of what right. organization you've Right. Put your trust in. Is it possible for it to continue to be powerful in sort of siloed use cases where it's contained data that you've provided or or does AI, AI really take off when we just say, okay, all data is shared everywhere? No, I don't think all data is shared everywhere. I, I was I said that 80% of the world's data is not even searchable mm-hmm. yet. We can't even get to access to 80% of the world's data. AI requires a tremendous amount of data and to ingest data in order to personalize whatever that might be. But that doesn't mean that, you know, it, there isn't a, a level, it, it's not all connected. It, it's not all. It doesn't, we don't need it to be. No, we don't need it to be. Value. No, That's no. Good. It depends on what, how it's applied. Right. And how creepy we get with it. I'll, I'll give you one from the audience here. This is an interesting one. Came up from the uh, song that we listened to at the end there. Um, the question is, creative jobs have always been seen as unattainable for AI, but the album that we just heard suggests otherwise. Do you think that AI will ever fully replace something like an advertising agency from a de- creative design, copywriting, all the way through to obviously putting something in market? Well, I think it'll evolve. I think it will evolve the agency the same way that I remember I was on the launch of desktop publishing. And, you know, I remember going to talk to our typesetter, which is probably something that most people in this room aren't even familiar with. Um, You know, desktop publishing changed and page layout and graphical user interface completely changed the world of graphic design. Um, AI is changing the world of production design with the ability to take multiple headlines, multiple visuals, multiple messaging, combine them and do all kinds of testing in a way that used to require someone to more manually Mm -hmm. do those things. So I like to think about it as it's going to evolve and it's going to change everyone's job, um, but it's going to give us the time to think and give us the white space, which I think that's where the magic happens. The magic is in the white space for our industry. Mm. And so often we don't have the white space to operate in, but that's where the magic happens that then we can take and apply for our clients. Very cool. One last question. I think some of the examples that you showed seem super complicated. I'm sure they all are, in fact, super complicated. And um, obviously, your organization works with some other fairly large organizations. Yes. But I agree with you on the point that like everybody needs to be building a discipline or an understanding here. Yeah. How 
can a small or a medium-sized organization start to leverage these advancements? Can they? Is the is the barrier to entry or the or the the price to play too high for them right now? Well. I mean, first of all, we as an organization want to be very open. You know, we just made one of the largest acquisitions in technology history with a completely open source company called Red Hat. And so we as a, you know, we have a ton of APIs for all of Watson that people can tap into. Um, all the reports that we do are completely open to anyone to, to see. We, we, we create, we're almost like a university. We're always developing research and sharing research out. Um, the Institute for Business Value on our websites has tons of information, whether it's by industry, whether it's by technology, whether it's AI, whether about customer experience, whether it's about blockchain, all those types of things. So um, getting in and reading about it and just starting to start starting to kind of think about it and think about how it applies to an area that's of interest to you, that's going to inspire you to think about how machine learning and AI might be able to impact what you're doing and how you might be able to tap into it. That's where I think to start. No, there's no, it, no one is too small to think about this. Every single person, every single organization is going to be impacted by this. So we have to all start kind of diving in and learning about it. Wonderful. Um, this has been a truly enlightening Oh, good uh, conversation, and I've appreciated your time very much. So it's fun to uh, be thank here with all of you. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Imagine how fast we could solve the world's biggest problems if more SaaS startups would gain traction sooner. Welcome to the Tech Entrepreneur on a Mission podcast. This podcast is dedicated to sharing experiences from B2B SaaS CEOs who are going above and beyond to deliver change that is noticed. You will hear their secrets and learn what is required to build a SaaS business that the world starts talking about and keeps talking about, and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so. You know, my biggest takeaway from Nancy's presentation is that we have this world of opportunity in front of us to better leverage data that is not yet being leveraged to help our customers feel more helped, more heard, and more included. Marketers often say that they want to create these communities and evangelists and build ambassadors for their brand, but their research suggests that consumers feel a belonging deficit in their lives and in their relationships with the companies that they transact with. Brands that are leading the way in bridging that gap can grow revenues at double digit rates. Now, despite our efforts with The Gathering and with this podcast to teach leaders how to lead with brand purpose and with personalized communication, IBM's report shows a disappointing large percentage of consumers feel no emotional connection to a brand. But rather than be disheartened by that fact, I see opportunity for improvement. IBM's data also proves that people want to have relationships and that those relationships can be strengthened in really simple ways. People want to be inspired to improve the world in some way. They want brands to help us come together to do something that's actually important. And they want to be attached to something that's cool and interesting so that they have social capital and something to talk about. Cult brands do that. 
And most brand leaders should pursue those types of objectives because the rewards are considerable. IBM's studies showed that those brands that are higher on the belonging index grow revenue at three times the rate of the brands that are at the bottom of that index. And this data was conducted over a six year period. To make that kind of success happen, marketing has to become a horizontal function that's connected to R&D, sales, finance, merchandising, and all aspects of company operations. You know, it can't just be this utilitarian customer service oriented activity. It has to really intersect with brand communications and what the brand stands for in a way that hasn't been fully developed in most brands today. I wish you well on creating that new type of journey. Until next time. Once again, this is your host, Chris Neeland, and you've been listening to Cult Brand Secrets, where we explore the great speakers and insights shared at the gathering a Forbes top-rated business summit. Learn more about the gathering at cultgathering.com. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please rate and review us on your podcast app. It really helps. Cult Brand Secrets is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Learn more about our podcasts at evergreenpodcast.com. Special thanks to Connor Standish and Laura Winter for their assistance in making this podcast possible. Also, I'd like to thank our producer and audio engineer, William Pritz, as well as executive producers, David Moss and Bridget Coyne. I'm your host, Chris Nealon. Thanks for listening. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily.